2 Samuel 18, at verse 9. And Absalom chanced to meet the servants of David. And Absalom was riding upon his mule. And the mule went under the thick boughs of a great oak. And his head was caught hold of the oak. And he was taken up between heaven and earth. And the mule that was under him went on. And a certain man saw it and said, told Joab and said, Behold, I saw Absalom hanging in an oak. And Joab said unto the man that told him, And behold, thou sawest it. And why didst thou not smite him there to the ground? And I would have given thee ten pieces of silver and a girdle. And the man said unto Joab, Though I should receive a thousand pieces of silver in my hand, Yet would I not put forth my hand against the king's son. For in our hearing the king charged thee and Abishai and Ittai, saying, Beware that none touch the young man Absalom. Otherwise, if I had dealt falsely against his life, and there is no matter hid from the king, then thou thyself wouldst have set thyself against me. Then said Joab, I may not tarry thus with thee. And he took three darts in his hand and thrust them through the heart of Absalom while he was yet alive in the midst of the oak. And ten young men that bear Joab's armor compassed about and smote Absalom and slew him. And Joab blew the trumpet and the people returned from pursuing after Israel. For Joab held back the people. And they took Absalom and cast him into the great pit in the forest and raised over him a very great heap of stones. And all Israel fled, every one, to his tent. Now Absalom in his lifetime had taken and reared up for himself the pillar which is in the king's dale. For he said, I have no son to keep my name in remembrance. And he called the pillar after his own name. And it is called Absalom's Monument unto this day. I'm tempted to apologize for reading that portion of the death of Absalom once again in your hearing. But we find that God the Holy Spirit inspired the author of this book of Scripture to reflect in the 18th verse upon something regarding a pillar that Absalom had built, had reared up, had had built. And it struck me, after reflecting a lot on this ignominious death of Absalom, the son of David, and a just death, that it would be good, as the Holy Spirit has suggested, I believe, it would be good to reflect upon the death of Absalom, of which we have just read about. I think that we should reflect upon death, as morbid as it is, and as contrary to our nature as it is. Nobody really likes to talk about death. Nobody likes to think about it, and yet we all face it in family members, 
and for ourselves. I recalled an occasion in my spiritual immaturity. I guess I was something of a of a kindergartner as far as the faith is concerned. Some 40 years ago when talking with another Christian who had been in the faith somewhat longer than I, and he was talking about going to visit a funeral parlor, and he didn't really know the deceased very well. In fact, quite often he spotted the names of people that he did he was at least acquainted with, and he would go and visit to console the family, to let them know he cared, and these many other good things. I had, as a, an infant in the faith, as I suggested, I had been confining, foolishly confining my diet to uh, milk, and maybe it was even just watered-down milk, and reading one particular author that I still am very fond of, but it's a problem to follow one and constrict your diet to one thing. At any rate, this author is somewhat brusque, and I became somewhat brusque, I suppose, because of it. At any rate, in this discussion with this friend, I said brusquely, let the dead bury the dead. And he said to me, quoting from Ecclesiastes 7, he said, it's better to go into the house of mourning. And when I got back to my Bible, the first chance, I, I opened that up. And this fellow was exactly right. The writer of Ecclesiastes, the preacher, Kohelet, says in chapter 7, a good name is better than precious oil and the day of death than one, the day of one's birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For that is the end of all men, and the living will lay it to his heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by the sadness of the countenance, the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. It's better to go into the house of mourning. It's good to reflect upon death. And many times we are faced with that matter, as I've already indicated. And many times we don't know the spiritual condition of the one who has passed. And we can't truly know, can we? Our sovereign God knows for certain who are his and who are not his. But I believe that when we look at Absalom and we consider his death, that there is absolutely no indication, no suggestion whatever that this young man, this rebel, this son of King David went, as uh, it's said of Judas, went to his place. And yet, ought we not to reflect on these things? Ought we not to be saddened? Especially by the occasional kinsman according to the flesh that passes from this life. And we have no good reason to believe 
that they were truly trusting in Christ, even though some may have given some kind of external profession. Their lives totally contradicted that profession. We read... We read in the scriptures in Proverbs 29.1. And I believe that this could be applied. We could put Absalom's name here. Proverbs 29.1. He that being often reproved hardeneth his neck shall suddenly be destroyed. And that without remedy. Is this not Absalom? He that being often reproved. Now how was he reproved? We just mentioned the last week or two how David failed miserably to reprove his children as he ought to have. But shouldn't his love for them have reproved them? Shouldn't his allowing Absalom to come back into the kingdom and and then later come even before him and see him face to face Absalom to see David face to face and the king kissed him. Shouldn't that kiss have reproved him? And turned him around. But as far as we know, it caused him to harden his neck even more. And to go ahead with his plans to destroy his father and take his throne from him. To steal the hearts of the men of Israel. In order to do this, he hardened his neck. The reproof did nothing. And in fact, it made him worse when one hardens their neck against reproof for sin. It becomes worse and worse. And they follow that path, that pathway down into that pit. We find Paul sympathetic to this Concept, this reality, this truth, those words quite well known in his epistle that he wrote to the church at Rome in chapter 1 and at verse 28. Listen to these words, please, and see if they don't also apply to Absalom and to all those who would behave in this manner. And even as they refused to have God in their knowledge, God gave them up unto a reprobate mind to do those things which are not fitting, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malignity, whisperers, backbiters, hateful to God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, without understanding, covenant breakers, without natural affection, unmerciful, who knowing the ordinance of God, that they that practice such things are worthy of death, not only do the same, but also consent with them that practice them. Again, could Absalom's name not be imprinted over that statement? Sadly, that speaks precisely to Absalom's behavior, to the heart of the matter, to his evil heart. The scripture tells us, Paul tells us in the ninth chapter of that same epistle, what if God, 
willing to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long-suffering vessels of wrath fitted unto destruction. It was not Absalom fitted unto destruction. Jeremiah 6.30, we read about those that went away from God. Jehovah hath rejected them. Absalom despised the forbearance and long-suffering of God. He despised the long-suffering and forbearance of his father, King David. He showed his despising of these things by his behavior. That's terrible, a sad case. Speaking of reprobation, now let me make it clear that we can't tell who are reprobate until after the fact. A little bit like they talk about Alzheimer's, and you can't really tell until after the patient is deceased, and then you can examine and find out if they actually had this disease. That's how reprobation seems to be. It's after the final, like we mentioned, the thief on the cross last week, that at that last moment that he cried unto Christ for mercy, remember me. Lord, when thou comest into thy kingdom. The other one, as far as we know, was a reprobate. The other thief, by his behavior. But it makes me think also of an Absalom-like character that we read of in Pilgrim's Progress. I trust that many of us are familiar with Pilgrim's Progress. And I confess, being brought to Christ in my middle years. The first time I ever heard of Pilgrim's Progress was when I was in high school, senior, senior English class, and just heard passing references to Pilgrim's Progress. I thought it was a history account of the Mayflower. I truly did. And it wasn't until I became a Christian and this book was set before me, a book that I love next to scripture of course but a book that I love but those of us who have read it will remember the man in the iron cage as Christian is escorted through interpreter's house in that allegory of John Bunyan's and as he sees this man in an iron cage and he and he and he asks the interpreter what's the deal if I can paraphrase what's the deal with this man Why is he in this cage? And the interpreter basically tells him, ask him. And so he asks the man. The man says, I am now a man of despair and shut up in this iron cage. I cannot get out. Oh, now I cannot. Again, please see if you don't see Absalom here. And all reprobates, although we don't, again, we don't know who they are, but listen. Christian says, but how did you come into this condition? The man, I left off to watch and be sober. I laid the reins upon the neck of my lust. You see Bunyan's beautiful allegorical language. I laid the reins upon the neck of my lust, like riding horseback. And you just give the horse free rein. Let him go wherever he wants and take you wherever he chooses. I laid the reins upon the neck of my lust. Did not Absalom do that? I sinned against the light of the word and the goodness of God. The goodness of so many things around him in his position in Israel. 
and the goodness of his father demonstrated before him again and again. And he says, this man says, I have grieved the spirit and he is gone. And sadly, many people whom the spirit has left don't even know he's left. Sadly, many churches the spirit has left and Ichabod needs to be written over the door, and they don't even know it. But this man in the iron cage says, I have grieved the spirit, and he is gone. I have tempted the devil, and he has come to me. I have provoked God to anger, and he has left me. I have so hardened my heart that I cannot repent. He that is often reproved hardeneth his neck, hardeneth his heart. I cannot repent. Christian says to him, is there no hope but you must be kept in this iron cage of despair? No. No, none. None at all. Christian says, why? The son of the blessed is very pitiful. Again, I ask you to see if you don't see Absalom here. The man says, I have crucified him to myself afresh. I have despised his person. I have despised his righteousness. I have counted his blood an unholy thing. I have done desperate to the spirit of grace. Therefore, I have shut myself out of all the promises, and there now remains to me nothing but threatenings, dreadful threatenings, fearful threatenings of certain judgments and fiery indignation which shall devour me as an adversary. Can't help but wonder if some of these things were going through Absalom's mind as he was hanging suspended in that bough of that tree and as he saw Joab approach him with those three darts. For what, Christian says, did you bring yourself into this condition? Why in the world would you bring yourself into this condition? The man says, for the lusts, pleasures, and profits of this world, in the enjoyment of which I did promise myself much delight. But now every one of those things also bite and gnaw me like a burning worm. Is this not truly a ghastly picture? Scripture paints for us of Absalom hanging suspended by his head or his hair in that tree. And what does he get? What is his reward for that? They throw him in a pit. Another awful picture. They throw him in a pit and they heap stones upon him. Heaps of stones one has said, are not satisfactory for a lasting monument. We read in Psalm 49 about those that, verse 6 speaks of those that trust in their wealth, that trust in their beauty as Absalom, that trust in their physical stature as Absalom, that trust in their position in the world as Absalom. Those that trust in their wealth or any other thing. We read in verse 11 of that 49th Psalm, their inward thought is that their houses shall continue forever 
and their dwelling places to all generations. They call their lands after their own names. They call their lands after their own names. Absalom would have had the people to worship him or to worship his memory. Do we not see that even on our own day and in the history of the world virtually forever? Even Cain, it appears, named the first city that he set up after his son. People name cities. They name things after their own name, trying to preserve their memory when they're dead and perhaps laying under a heap of stones. Laying under a heap of stones. But he thought, he thought that that would preserve his memory. He thought you see, just like here, they call it lands after their own name and other, in, in order to have people remember them. Oh, that they will remember me, that they will remember me with favor, that they will remember me with love, with respect, and so on. And isn't this what Absalom said? He reared up for himself the pillar which is in the king's dale, for he said, I have no son to keep my name in remembrance. And he called the pillar after his own name, Absalom's monument. I have no son. And so I, I build this pillar, this monument, and name it after my own name so that people will remember me after I'm gone. And that they'll come by and say, what a wonderful person he was. What a beautiful figure of a man he was. But that's not what takes place. The worm has its rule over all. It doesn't do any good to call names after your own, or call places after your own name. That's not, that does no good at all. None, whatever. This pillar, as one has said, as I mentioned, seems to be an inferior alternative to the maintaining of one's name by means of male descendants. Now, some of you may be aware that in the 14th chapter of the book that we're looking at, 2 Samuel, that we read of Absalom there that he actually had four children and he actually had three sons and a daughter and he named the daughter Tamar after the sister that Amnon violated that he loved so, uh, that Absalom loved so much. He loved his sister. He named his daughter after her. And people wonder, how do you reconcile this? We're told he has three sons here. He himself says, I have no son. Well, most of the commentators understand that to suggest strongly that his sons died in infancy. And they use the argument that he didn't even give them names. He gave the daughter a name, and it's recorded. And it's suggested, and I think that it's very likely, that they died in infancy, and so they never were given a name. So the truth remains. He had no son to keep my name in remembrance. So he puts up a memorial so he'll be remembered. Is that not the memorial that many men put up? And I'm not criticizing this practice. I'm just asking, isn't that the memorial that many men put up? They name their sons after their own name. You have so many juniors, and I've never seen so many trays as I've met when we, after we moved south. And I'm not criticizing juniors or trays. I'm just saying, isn't there an aspect likely involved in that? Men naming their sons after their own name. 
trying to keep their name in memory, trying to make it a, a memorial. Look what we read in Isaiah, in Isaiah 56. Very interesting matter about this issue of names in Isaiah 56. Speaking of the eunuchs, in verse 3, Neither let the foreigner that hath joined himself to Jehovah speak, saying, Jehovah will surely separate me from his people. Neither let the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. Now you know eunuchs can't have sons, right? For thus saith Jehovah of the eunuchs that keep my Sabbaths and choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant. That's what he asks of people. That's what he asks when he brings them unto himself. He says, unto them will I give in my house and within my walls a memorial and a name better than of sons and of daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. Now there's a memorial. There's a name. I have no son to keep my name in remembrance. God says, I will give them a name. I will give my people a name. We find this registered in Revelation. In those epistles written to those churches of Asia Minor, we find reference a few times, and I will give them those those that belong to him, those that hold the faith, I will give them a white stone with a name, a new name written on it that only they know. And in a couple of the other letters, there's reference to a new name, a name that God will give to his people, a name. In many cases, they're all cases that only they will know. But God is the one that gives that name. One other reference in Isaiah, in the 62nd chapter, Isaiah 62. And the second verse. And the nations shall see thy righteousness, and all kings thy glory. And thou shalt be called by a new name which the mouth of Jehovah shall name. God gives his people a new name. Perhaps we see this typed out in the New Testament with a number of his people that are given new names. I don't know all the etymology of the different names, but nonetheless, they receive a new name. And it seems to possibly suggest something like this. But God is the one that is keeping, keeping his people, and he's giving them a new name. He makes them a new people, a new, a new creation, and he gives them a new name. He gives them his name, we're told. In Revelation 3.12, one of those letters that I mentioned, He that overcometh, I will make him a pillar. There's a pillar that matters. I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out thence no more. And I will write upon him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which cometh down out of heaven from my God, and my own new name. This is, this is all the memorial and the remembrance that we need. 
or shall need forever and ever. Absalom's monument. They don't truly know where it is anymore. They find one there and then they discover that that was built in the second century or something. They don't even know where it is. We don't leave any monuments here. The only monument that we can possibly leave and that we should hope and pray that we do leave is that man loved God. And God loved him. Saul made a monument in, in the 1 Samuel fifteen twelve. We read it right after his violating God's commandment about destroying all the Amalekites. He makes a monument to himself is what it simply says. Well, of course, men make monuments, and they're all to themselves. He made a monument to himself. But as we've already looked at Isaiah 56, unto them will I give in my house and within my walls a memorial and a name better than our sons and daughters. We want the name that God gives us. We don't need to be leaving memorials to ourselves. And that name that we just referred to in Revelation 3.12, the name that God gives his people. And one of the hymn writers, in fact, we sang, lastly, one of his hymns. I love Wesley's hymns. And I don't think he was much of an Armenian, but uh, his hymns don't suggest that. But at any rate, he has one hymn in our hymnal where he has these words, my name is written on his hands. My name is written on his hands. What more memorial do you want? What more pillar do you want than that? A name better than sons or daughters. Thus saith Jehovah in Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24, Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom, neither let the mighty man glory in his might, let not the rich man glory in his riches, but let him glory him that glorieth glory in this, that he hath understanding and knoweth me, that I am Jehovah who exerciseth loving kindness, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, saith Jehovah. Let us glory in him, in Christ, in God. Let him be our monument, let him be our pillar. And we don't need any other pillars. Let us glory in him and in the spirit of adoption, whereby we are made to know that we are his peculiar people, his chosen people, a people for his own possession. Again, now there's a memorial. There's a pillar. People of his own possession, ransomed by the blood of the Son of God himself. We see a beautiful picture, a beautiful type of this in Exodus 28. Exodus 28. And at the 28th verse, speaking of the priesthood, speaking of the high priest. In verse 28 of chapter 28, And they shall bind the, pre- bind the breastplate, by the rings thereof unto the rings of the ephod 
with a lace of blue, that it may be upon the skillfully woven band of the ephod, and that the breastplate be not loosed from the ephod. Now listen, Aaron was a type of our Lord Jesus Christ. He was a type of the priesthood. He was a type of the great high priest. He is our great high priest. Listen in the next verse. And Aaron shall bear the names of the children of Israel. The Israel of God. Are you not a member of the Israel of God? Through faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the great high priest, our great high priest. Aaron shall bear the names of the children of Israel and the breastplate of judgment upon his heart when he goeth in unto the holy place for a memorial before Jehovah continually. Is that not our great high priest standing even now at the right hand of God ever living to intercede for us? Setting our names, if you will, before the Father on that breastplate. Our names are written on that breastplate. That Christ bears. Our names are written, as Wesley says, upon his hands. We find that corroborated in Hebrews, as we've already suggested, in Hebrews 7.25 and in 9.11 and 12. Corroborated by that New Testament author. So we don't need to rejoice. We don't want to rejoice. We should not rejoice in building some kind of a monument. Oh, maybe I can get them to name part of Highway 123 after me. <laughs> Foolishness. Having your name somewhere. And how many know the names? How many know who these people were? We've seen such with uh, monuments recently. And I would, have, I would assert that 95% of those people that are ready to tear down a monument, don't even have a clue who the person is whose monument they're destroying. But it does demonstrate this truth. Monuments don't mean diddly. They don't mean anything. Rather rejoice. Rather rejoice in this, that your names are written in heaven, said Jesus our Lord. That your names were written in the Lamb's book of life from before the foundation of the world. That we can say with Wesley, my name is written on his hands. The cross of Jesus Christ is our memorial. It's our place. It's our monument. And the only monument that we need. Jesus Christ, our great high priest. Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, the Lamb of God who saved us through his own blood. He's our pillar. Let us pray. Father, we thank thee. And thank thee for the privilege of this opportunity of thanking thee and praising thee along with thy people. For our Lord Jesus Christ, for his love, for his blood. We thank thee in his name. Amen. Stand for the benediction, please. It's taken from Psalm 65. In the fourth verse, Blessed is the man whom thou choosest and causest to approach unto thee, that he may dwell in thy courts.
We shall be satisfied with the goodness of thy heart. Thy heart. 